0: This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women.
1: Such a historic moment. So the leaders met that same evening. They had a a conference call, which President Zelensky basically being been holed up in in Kyiv that was under attack and discussed what our reaction should be. And that was, of course, such an important decision point for Europe. And of course, everybody came out the only way we really could, uh, which, I mean, when we see a country being completely unjustifiably invaded by a much more powerful neighbor, so really, of course, condemning uh, in the strongest possible ter- terms this invasion.
0: We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, Director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, for these incredible conversations.
2: Today, I'm delighted to welcome the Ambassador of Denmark to the United States, Ambassador Christina Marcus Lassen, to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. Ambassador Lassen assumed her current role in September 22 and has previously held the position of political director and undersecretary for political affairs in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Denmark. Ambassador Lassen has also been the EU ambassador to Lebanon and the ambassador of Denmark to Syria and Jordan. So needless to say, it's a real treat for us all to hear about her experience representing and serving Denmark throughout her career. Welcome Ambassador Lassen. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. So this this is a real treat. You you have years of experience working for the Danish Foreign Service and Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So to start off, I, I'd love to learn a bit more about how you found yourself working in government. I think
1: just since I was really young, I had this fascination with international affairs and politics. And of course, I grew up in sort of the late '90s and early uh, late '80s and early '90s and. Uh, where there was so much optimism. It was the end of the Cold War with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Very optimistic in the 90s. There was so much hope somehow. Europe was whole and free finally. And sort of border was open. It was so easy to travel. And we were, I remember my youth as we were just traveling around in, in Europe and around the world really freely and, and so easily. So there were signs, I guess, that the, the world was going in a much more democratic and free directions and so many opportunities. So already, I guess, in high school and university, I had these days abroad. I was in traveling in Europe. And I lived over here for a while. And uh, once I graduated, it was just so natural for me to go to the, try to join the foreign service. I, I frankly, it was not very imaginative. I didn't really know what else to do. I, I wanted to just serve my country and help forge those relations and grasp those opportunities that seem to be out there to, be, to make the world more more peaceful, more free and fair and more democratic. So all the aspirations we had in those those years. And I ended up there as my first posting as a as a young staff at the embassy here in Washington, actually covering U.S. foreign policy, which was my favorite issue at the time.
2: Well, I remember back in the day, right, we thought that or at least I thought, you know, I'd be working myself out of a, of a job, right? Like it's the end of the Cold War. There's some crisis management stuff. But, you know, we were all thinking that the the, the world was going to be more safe and secure. Right. And- mm-hmm. Um, we were not, We weren't going to need you know, defense studies for much longer. That's right. And then, of course, what happened for me
1: here when during my stay here, this was the early I arrived here in 2000. So, of course, I happened to be in D.C. When, when 9-11 happened. And I think looking back now, I mean, the impact of that day and the consequences, not just for the U.S., but really for the rest of the world and for national security for the next couple of decades That, of course, as so many other diplomats and people were working with national security around the world, that really affected uh, my career. And for me personally, it was also uh, a a quite direct reason why I ended up spending a lot of time in the Middle East, uh, as you said, both as ambassador in Syria and during the Arab Spring and, and Lebanon also in a quite difficult time. So it has really affected us. And then, of course, coming back to D.C. at a time where once again, you can say we're at a major inflection point, I mean, probably the biggest in in a generation with the Russian aggression in Ukraine. At least for me, it feels very much like all the pieces coming together, everything. I mean, all the tools I've sort of picked up in the last three decades, all the networks I've built and that to be here now and and hopefully be part of a solution and best serve my government in the interest of the transatlantic relationship.
2: Just to go back to, you know, your recollections of the the September 11th, 2001 experience, I'd I'd love to... Know a little bit more about how how you perceived that day and how you processed that day and what it meant for you because it was so jarring and so transformational. And as you say, it was one key inflection point in our, our our history, and we're we're facing another one. I'd love to get a sense of your impressions of the day and how Denmark and the United States, you know, relations were at that time.
1: We already had, of course, very close relation uh, for Denmark. I mean, the U.S. is our most important ally and, and of course, security guarantor for decades. And already we did have a very strong uh, uh, alliance at the time. But, of course, 9-11 just put all of that into perspective for all of us. And, of course, as you will remember, all of Europe and NATO and, I mean, the whole world really stood with America in those days. Uh, and, and months after nine eleven, it was so transformational, as you said, and, and for everyone who was here in Washington, D.C., I think it was just such a, a life impression, really. I, I think we all felt, those of us, and, and you might have been here that day too, that really uh, the world order was shattered. I mean, something was broken that we, we we just couldn't imagine something like this happening. And it was not that this particular day where, of course, um, it was shocking for everyone, uh, not just here, but in the whole country and around the world. But, but also in the months after, as I remember, we really lived in this mindset of not knowing whether another attack might hit us. And that was really the feeling here in Washington, I remember. You, you might recall there were so many... Events where most of them later on turned out not to have anything to do actually with, with 9-11 and, and, and the terrorism uh, that we were, we were fighting at the time, but that just made people feel very unsafe. And that, of course, also led to some of those major um, wars in the Middle East uh, where, where my country also really stood side by side with the U.S. and participated, of course, both in the Afghanistan operation, but also later on in the Iraq war.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's hard to remember sometimes given how some of these the foreign policy choices of Washington played out it's hard to remember that sense of vulnerability exactly that's that sense that at any time something could go horribly wrong again and how that was psychologically affecting the decision making at the time
1: and maybe for the first time in the U.S. uh, I mean since obviously Pearl Harbor right but as you said the decision making was very affected by that whole that's the feeling we had here in town by that whole um, psychology around that moment and how vulnerable everybody felt. I mean, all the, all the new sort of things we started doing, if you look at security in the airport, right? All of that, that started really back at that time uh, where we, we just suddenly felt so vulnerable, but particularly here in the US, it was, it was a very new situation. Yeah.
2: Well, so you mentioned you, you went from here and then you ended up spending a lot of years in the Middle East uh, managing a variety of different crises. How did you see your decision-making and leadership style evolve over that that time? And you mentioned the networks that you'd built. How did those experiences shape your thinking on being a leader today?
1: Uh, Obviously, that's the less positive side is probably that some of that optimism we all brought with us from the 90s, was more shattered. I mean, there was a lot of optimism also when I served in Syria first and, and when the Arab uprisings first broke out, what we called the Arab Spring at the time, of course, that this would actually lead to something better and um, some very uh, positive and organic democratic movements uh, in many places in the Middle East. And, of course, um, most of that didn't turn out exactly like people people wanted to pull it mildly. Um, so there's probably a more sense of, of realism there, Um that we now bring with us, unfortunately, into this new decade uh, with some other also really, really serious uh, challenges. It also, of course, um, as you said, there was a lot of crisis management involved in all of that. Um, so I picked up quite a lot of, of experiences with that being in situations that we hadn't really imagined ourselves uh, being in. Um, and I could add from, from my own country, we were also in quite a special situation. That was even before I, I went out to the Middle East. We had... Our own crisis that was somehow related, I would say, also to 9/11, uh, with what we call the cartoon crisis in Denmark, uh, which basically uh, were some um, uh, cartoon, satiric cartoons in Danish newspaper that sparked a whole uh, foreign policy crisis for us, with our government, our embassies being attacked a couple of places, several places in the Middle East, and and lots of resistance towards or something that we had never experienced before. So it just gave us a much more sort of tough and and realistic view on the world and our role in it, I would say.
2: Mm -hmm. And also the necessity for adapting to and, and managing situations that just are wholly unthinkable the day before. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Well, that's actually a really great segue to the decision that we wanted to talk through with you today, which is having a front row seat and history is Denmark formulated its response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Oh, there, there was all the buildup happening and there was all the signs and indicators, but the invasion was likely to occur. But still, it was hard to wrap our brains around the notion that Putin would do something this strategically counterproductive. It's just bizarre, yeah. at least from our from our logical standpoint. Could you set the scene for us, like where were you when russia invaded
1: no that's that's really true i mean I mean luckily and thanks to to the American uh, very smart strategy, I think we all believe uh, of of sharing Intel, we had of course heard about this massive troop buildup for months and the american concerns uh, I mean, there was a couple of intelligence services who picked this up and and that was being shared. Uh, both with allies, but of course also very publicly in an attempt to try to deter uh, President Putin from from these really reckless and, as you said, uh, strategically counterproductive or or uh, basically just counterintuitive plans. And that's, of course, also why we all had a hard time really believing that. I was actually visiting Ukraine with our foreign minister just a little bit more than a month before that, and we went out to the contact line at the time because, of course, there had already been clashes taking place in Ukraine since Well, there was basically a, a sort of a war going on since 2014, and we went out to the front line. And even that was well, late January of 2022, the Ukrainians themselves had a hard time to believe that, that Putin would really go ahead with this reckless uh, and, of course, completely legal uh, mission. So we were prepared in a sense, and that's why at least we had had some time to build up and try to avoid it first and foremost. Of course, diplomacy was working at really high speed here to try to avoid that situation. But then, when it finally happened, uh, I think, like 9/11, it's it's probably going to be one of those days where we all pretty much remember where we were or what we did when we when we heard about this. And, 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 and personally, I was I was I, I received a phone call at 4:30 in the morning from the Ukrainian ambassador to Denmark saying that. It was actually happening. The Russians were now going ahead with this invasion and that there were both, I mean, uh, troops uh, pouring into the country, but also, uh, I mean, the capital of Kiev, of course, being directly under attack. So it was so shocking and still we were so uh, prepared for that call, so to say. So it was a very, very uh, intense day that it's hard when I even think back to remember all the details. We were just like everywhere in all the, uh, of course, bureaucracies and governments around the world, tried to grasp with this, uh, doing everything we had in terms of coordinating with allies, uh, consultations within the government, with parliament, crafting our messages. And there were all these important meetings between allies taking place, of course. Um, And then very importantly, um, the European leaders, so the heads of state and government decided to immediately traveled to Brussels for an emergency meeting so they basically cleared the calendar all twenty seven went down there so about four o'clock in the afternoon of that day I was on my way to Brussels uh, with the prime minister's delegation for for this extraordinary meeting and and again such a historic moment so the leaders met that same evening they had a, a conference call which president Zelensky basically being holed up in, in Kiev uh, that was under attack and discussed what our reaction should be and that was of course such an Important decision point for Europe. And of course, everybody came out the only way we really could, uh, which, I mean, when we see a country being completely unjustifiably invaded by a much more powerful neighbour, so really, of course, condemning uh, in the strongest possible ter- terms this invasion. And we also, from the EU side, which I thought was also extraordinary, this same evening uh, imposed the first package of sanctions, because, again, we've had some time to actually prepare this in case it it really happened. And everybody was just on board uh, from that first moment. And, of course, you can say for, for both my country and for Europe, our role in the world was really decided that day and everybody made that decision and stepped up to the plate. So an extremely important day and extremely worrying when you think back of it and, and horrible, of course.
2: Interesting how the indicators... Allowed for that kind of advanced planning. Because so for for our listeners, getting a multilateral organization to agree on anything within like years is uh is 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 difficult. Getting a group of twenty seven nations to endorse not only a common position but sanctions so quickly—that's an incredible, incredible feat of diplomacy.
1: Well, that, that's right, Kathleen. But I think. At this point, the EU, the European Union, is really more than a typical. I mean, it's not a multilateral organization anymore. It's a much, much closer relationship. And you have to think that these leaders who sat in that room, these 20, twenty-seven heads of state and government, they really uh, have been together in so many difficult crisis situations, especially in the in the years just prior to this situation because of the COVID situation, also. So we had had this whole. I mean, of course, horrible for the whole world, but also another situation where the European countries were just closing so extremely closely about everything happening and meeting much more uh, 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 often than they used to do. And then we had, we had other major international crises like the, the exit from Afghanistan. There had been so much going on, and they had also been clo- coordinating very closely on this um, fear of what was going to happen uh, between Russia and Ukraine. So in that sense, they have built a lot of trust between them. I mean, when these meetings happen, it's basically just them in the room um, and they know each other well. Uh, Of course, there are changes from time to time in certain countries, but still um, they know each other well and they're used to making these major decisions. And that's really one of the strengths of the European cooperation right now, um, that we are able to move ahead with some of these decisions. Of course, sometimes it takes time. We are 27 different countries. Uh, But really, in all these major crises, we've been able to make those major decisions and really made Europe stronger along the way.
2: That is fascinating. The the human connection, being together in the hot seat, having to work through these problems over and over again, created these mechanisms for rapid Mm -hmm. diplomatic response. That is a really fascinating insight. It is. It is. And
1: that was, I mean, again, uh, we have seen that basically ever since. I mean, that was... uh, uh, the first sanctions package was, of course, adopted uh, that day and the days follow, just following. But uh, now, just a couple of weeks ago, Europe has just passed its um, sanctions package non- number 10. And, of course, we're not doing just doing sanctions here. Uh, we're doing, uh, I mean, there's so many, uh, all the individual European countries, including my own, have, of course, done everything we could uh, to both, I mean, uh, sadly, having to sort of punish Russia. But also, of course, doing everything we could uh, to support uh, Ukraine. So, I mean, just in my own country, I mean, since day one of this, um, you saw not just the government coming together to support Ukraine, but also there was such a popular support. I think you've had a, quite a lot of that over here, too, in the States. But really, in Europe, we saw people coming out in solidarity, in huge rallies, doing Uh, private charity events, I mean, driving, you saw people from all over Europe driving to the border of Ukraine, basically picking up refugees and hosting them in their homes. So of course, all over Europe, in addition to what we've done in in immense uh, military support and humanitarian support, financial support to the Ukrainian government, we've of course also, I mean, uh, on the humanitarian side, taken in millions and millions of refugees. I think it's about 8 million refugees now being hosted. Around Europe. And of course, there have been so many consequences in terms of rising inflation. I mean, something I have never seen in my lifetime for sure. Uh, Energy prices, all of that. And still, Europe has stuck together in this. I mean, a little bit against all odds because obviously, often we hear over here that people worry if Europe can really um, do this and stick together. Uh, But so far, nobody, there's been no shaking anywhere. And everybody has really just. uh, um done whatever was right and and supported Ukraine.
2: That's true. I mean that's that's definitely been one of the success stories. And I I was one of the people that was um a bit worried about energy costs and and economic costs. That's right, um, uh, you know, I guess six, seven months ago. But I'm happy to have been wrong about that. That Europe really has held together. And it's it's a really amazing positive story. That's right. Yeah, I mean the
1: energy prices was one of the really really big concerns about this this winter which we are now almost through. And and what what we managed to do in this past year, of course, we can be criticized for having been too dependent on Russian oil and gas and everybody completely acknowledges that now, but then at the other hand, we we just made this very very important decision that that's going to be history. We don't want that anymore and and just I mean the numbers that you see now are staggering in terms, I think Europe was something like 42% dependent on Russian gas back last spring, uh, one year ago. And just six months later, it was something like 7 or 9%. I mean, it really fell very, very uh, sharply. Um, you also saw the way that we all tried to save energy. I mean... I was almost, I mean, I was back in Denmark in November and I came to uh, visit some of the major corporations and government offices there. And I saw people almost sitting with their winter jackets inside. I mean, I'm not exaggerating because everybody was really just trying. We had put uh, sort of a, a, a goal out there. People should try to to have only a certain temperature in, office, in public offices or in private offices. And people are really doing that because we wanted to really cut our energy consumption. So, I think a country like my own, we, we managed to cut by 30% just by some of these measures. And and we at the same time, and that's been one good thing about all this, of course, it has accelerated our energy transition into renewable energy. So uh, in the same time, we managed to increase our, our wind energy production by 30%. So now in my country, it's about 50% of our electricity consumption is really just from, from wind energy. So we were fa- we were doing all, and this is again has been all over Europe that this has been happening. Uh, but of course, we're not completely out of the woods yet, and we we still uh, need to 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 work on that. And there's another winter coming next year, of course. But at least so far, so good.
2: Yeah. Well, turning back to the day itself um, when mm-hmm. it was invaded. So you mentioned the wide number of different actors and organizations and interlocutors that you had to connect with and work policy with. I'm curious, how did the ministry organize itself upon hearing this news? And also related, how did you prioritize your response and and what you thought needed to be part of the response? And how, how how did you think about that given all of the, the craziness and the different you know possibilities for stray voltage at the time, we'd be, be curious on you know, how did you organize and how did you prioritize the, the components of the Danish response?
1: Um, I, I mean, like a lot of these crisis situation, I mean, everything seems to happen at the same time, right? I mean, we had some very immediate practical issues, I mean, security issues with our own people underground, our embassy staff, like everyone else. Uh, our embassy had at the time been been relocated to Lviv in in the east in the western part of Ukraine, uh, so they were relatively safe, and they actually pretty quickly moved back into Kiev, where they still are, of course, as most of the other embassies. But so there are things like that, small and big things, uh, and of course some major major decisions had to be made. So we very uh, quickly established basically a crisis organization within uh, the foreign ministry. Um, uh, so basically pulling everybody and, and pulling lots of extra resources. I would say for, for months, most of us in the foreign ministry, relatively small, were just working on this, this one uh, issue and, and a lot of people still are, of course. Um, so it was um, highest priority from the government. So not, this was not just like a foreign ministry issue in that sense. So we also had a, a cross, what you call interagency group, of course but with so many different actors that normally would not have been, again, because it it so affects our society in so many ways. So we had, of course, our Minister for Energy and and, uh, Energy uh, Security. We had Ministry of Social Affairs and others. Everybody linked to, I mean, the big, we were expecting that we will be receiving maybe up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees in in a matter of few weeks. Uh, So that was also being ready to prioritize. Of course, a lot of work with our Ministry of Defense because we immediately uh, decided, and again, this was groundbreaking for a lot of us, including a lot of our neighbors in Europe, um, that we decided to actually deliver uh, weapons donations to a country in a conflict, which is something that we would probably had not done at least for many, many decades before. So those those discussions, of course, had to go very, very fast and something that, of course, the government would have to consult with with, with parliament. So we were working um all the time of course and over the weekends and just having these massive uh, decisions passed through the governments and 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 preparing those decisions um so all of that was very important we had after 2 weeks of course and you have seen similar major decisions in in many places in Europe for example in Sweden and Finland deciding to join NATO we also had sort of our big moments uh, where a couple of weeks after the invasion basically all the major political parties came together on a national agreement that just uh, just made a decision on on an immediate injection into our defense budget and also a permanent rise of our defense budget. But also already at that time, two weeks after the invasion, we decided as Denmark um, to get rid of all our dependency of Russian oil and gas. So that was a bit earlier than the rest of Europe. And then we also had a big decision for us, which was that we wanted to get rid of our special situation, not participating in European security and defence uh, cooperation, which we had a special opt out there. So we had a referendum about that, actually, very quickly after that was passed. So, so there were so many things happening at the same time, and the organisation was basically just trying to have um, a central uh, coordination within the ministry. All, I mean, several times a day, and of course. Delegating those different issues to to various uh, key points within the ministry and having them run ahead with it, basically. That's
2: fascinating. So uh, I guess to to wrap up our conversation today, which has been incredibly insightful, your are Smart woman, Smart Power. Do you think that your gender had an impact on any of the decisions or the approach that you've taken to these decisions throughout this time? If, if yes, why? But, and if not, why not?
1: You know, it's something, it's interesting because previously in my career, I never really um, thought so much about that and I was not very conscious about it. But then as I'm getting older and looking back and it's been 26 years now I'm with the ministry and of course working also with some of these issues even before, uh, I realized that how often I've been basically the only woman in the room, and especially when it came to these national security or foreign policy crises, And that's one thing that I think has it has obviously slowly changed in the last few years. And there's many more women in this field, luckily. But what has been special, I think, about this crisis, and I can't really, unfortunately, pinpoint whether it has affected the handling of the crisis or the decision-making, but at least I think this is the first major international crisis where there's been so many women in, the decision, in decision-making positions around the table. I mean, both among the leaders, at least when I look at the European side, I mean, my own prime minister, obviously, also you had the Swedish and Finnish prime ministers at the time uh, at this very important moment for their countries, the European Commission president, of course, Ursula von der Leyen. She's obviously also a woman and been one of the most outspoken uh, leaders on this and supportive of Ukraine. But also I think in the bureaucracy feeding into the process, it's the first time that I've seen all these decision-supporting roles with um, really, I mean, in this country, of course, lots of uh, key persons, uh, key women advising Secretary Blinken and the president here, but also in, in in Europe, I mean, so many of the of the actors and lots of my colleagues over there. So, in this sense, I think at least uh, women were represented around the table when these major decisions were made, and that's of course so linked to what we, my country, and also of course over here, very much in the U.S., uh, our discussion on women, peace, and security, what we've been talking about for for the last couple of of decades right Uh, uh, how important it is that that women are also part of these decisions and solutions uh, when we do um, national security and of course even more of course when we talk about achieving sustainable peace unfortunately it doesn't seem we are there right now but just so important that that women are present in that process.
2: Yeah and I guess one of the things that I've noticed and it's it's hard to Say is this correlation or causation? But we've had many more women in these decision-making roles, and and we've seen the broader, holistic, strategic aspects of this war, of this crisis, being addressed, raised, brought to the fore in ways that 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 I haven't seen in other international crises it's usually the conversation at least in my perception is about the military response and how do we mm-hmm. get out, and out. this is you know we're talking about you know the the refugee crisis we're talking about energy like right. all of these different components um we're talking about filtration camps and how are yeah. we going to reintegrate these you know the poor kids that have been sent to mm-hmm. run are like, being adopted yeah. yeah right yeah. and so in in ways that are, are just a part of the conversation that I haven't noticed before. I, I think that's very
1: true. I think, I mean, for, for, again, for Denmark, we've always had more and argued for years for this comprehensive approach where we try to see all of these pieces as, as part of the same uh, picture, really. Uh, and it's true that in this crisis, at least, I think for Europe, I mean, it's so much part of our own neighborhood. So we're feeling it. I mean, people are feeling it in their daily lives, right? So it becomes very obvious, but it's true that there has been more focus on this also. I mean, I think it's so widely accepted that obviously um, military donations and weapons support is crucial for this war. But at the same time, um, this this Europe, Ukraine cannot survive. Is not at the same time we help to keep the government running and to uh, alleviate some of the humanitarian consequences and take care of the refugees until they are able to go back and even start some of that early recovery that we do in some of these cities now where there's been a pushback to the Russian troops, for example, helping reestablish water and sanitation systems. So all of these things, and of course the whole accountability agenda, which is so important. And I don't, I mean, it's hard to say because I don't. we don't want to stereotype here. We don't know if that's because there's more women around the table here, but at least accountability is so much higher on the agenda in this conflict than any time before. Also because of some of the new, possibilities we have basically frankly with social media and we basically technological uh, possibilities of, of of recording evidence so quickly on the battleground so we're just in a completely different situation there in, in terms of this conflict but of course when it comes down to this conflict as ugly and brutal and tragic as as any other uh, historical conflict uh, we know from i mean we didn't actually think to believe that we were ever going to see a war like this in europe anymore
2: right it's shocking in every sense of the word. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador. It's been a real honor to uh, sit down with you today and learn about your experiences during the the two major inflection points in our careers. So thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Kathleen. It was my pleasure.
0: Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SmartWomen, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJMcInnes1. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.